Hey, we've got a problem here. What did you do? Nothing. I stirred the tanks. Uh, this is Houston. Uh, say again, please. Houston, we have a problem. We have a main bus B undervolt. We've got a lot of thruster What's activity here, Houston. Now? It just went offline. Oh, there's another master alarm, Houston. I'm checking a quad. Christ, there's no repress valve. Maybe it's in quad We've C. got a computer restart. I'm going to reconfigure the RCS. We've got a pin light. Fire fire doesn't make any sense. We've got multiple caution and warning, Houston. We've got a reset restart. All right, I'm going to SDS. Jesus. Flight, the heart rates are skyrocketing. Econ, what's your data telling you? Uh, O2, tank 2, not reading at all. Tank 1 is at uh, 725 PSI and falling. Fuel cells one and three are, uh... oh boy, what's going on here? Flight, let me get back to you. Flight GNC. Flight, they're all over the place. They keep going close to gimbal lock. I, I keep losing radio signal. Flight, they're their antenna must be flipped. 22, they're going to have to do it manually. If they do one at a time, people. One at a time. One at a time. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another wonderful episode of Chuck Goes to the Movies, where we talk about different films or filmmakers that impact our lives or influence our love for movies. And today, we are going to be talking about a really special film, uh, the first film since we've started the show that's actually based off of true events that happened in space. The place where, you know, in my dreams, I love to go to, but then after watching these movies, I want to stay far away from. But we'll get to that here in a little bit. I'm joined again by my brother, Robert. Robert, how are you doing today? Yo, yo, yo. I'm good. Yo. I just, I just, I just got a massage, so I'm, I'm nice and relaxed. I literally got home like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> nice, relaxed. You've already warned me. You've got pages and pages of notes to go through. Pages and pages of so, how's Thor doing? Thor is locked up downstairs, so he doesn't bother me during this podcast. Oh, poor buddy. But, hey. <laughs> nah, he's I, got the whole I kitchen understand. to roam around in plenty of toys. He's fine. <laughs> that kitchen will be destroyed by the time you get down there. Dude, he chews on my dang windowsill and my oh. floorboards. It's like, come on. Come on, man. And then when I try to discipline him, he yawns. Like, Ugh. I'm like, are you really yawning when I'm trying to discipline you? <laughs> Yeah, I feel like that's Rygan. Every time he does something wrong and we try to like put him in timeout or something like that, he thinks that's a game. He doesn't care. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Every time I try to discipline <laughs> him, he, thinks he runs around like trying to play with me. I'm like, no, I'm trying to punish you. <laughs> <laughs> Silly dog. Yeah. All right. So before we dive into talking about this absolutely amazing film, I have your question of the episode. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. So did I already mention we're talking about Apollo 13? I think so. Okay. I hope so. Well, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, guys, in case I haven't mentioned it yet, we're talking about <laughs> Apollo 13, which is an absolutely amazing film based off real events that happened. Um, so the question of the episode is, removing Apollo 13 from the list of choices, what is your favorite movie that takes place in space? The Martian, hands down. Boom, I knew done. you were going to say that. I I don't even I know why I wrote down this question because I knew exactly I literally what watched it again the be. other day because I just like that movie so much. I don't know what it is about that movie, but it's such a good movie. <laughs> it is a good movie. It is a. I, I have to give it that. Uh, I think we've talked about this before. I think it's one of Matt Damon's best performances of his career. Oh, me too. And it is on our list, and it is going to be talked about eventually. But yes, I love that movie. Okay, now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this question to the next level. If I was going to remove The Martian from the list of, opportun uh, uh, list of <laughs> answers, what would be your second favorite 
space movie. Armageddon. All right. Okay. I can I can live with that. I can live with that. Uh, the answer to that question from my perspective is gravity. <laughs> no, the, the, the true answer to this question is... The true answer is gravity. No, I, I, I love gravity. Actually, gravity is my... No, gravity aside is from movie, Apollo yeah. 13, which is my second favorite movie of all time, gravity is one of my favorite space movies, and it is the reason I don't ever want to go to space, because it scares the crap out of me. I still have panic attacks when I watch that movie, oh, yeah. but I love watching that movie. Good answer to the question. I'm going to try to think of a harder question next time. Jesus. All right, let's dive into Apollo 13. So some film facts before we get into the fun part. It was released June 30th of 1995. It had an estimated $52 million budget. It did $25 million on its opening weekend and $355 million worldwide. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 96% critic score and certified fresh, an 87% audience score. So I want to know what audience members are not liking this movie. This movie should be in the 90s, guys. It should be, but I mean, that's still a pretty dang good score, though. That is a good score. Um, I've got some critic reviews that I screenshotted here, so... I actually didn't write down any critic reviews. I... I was going to skip it, but I really did like a couple of them that I read, so I did want to review them. So the first one being from Gene Siskel from the Chicago Tribune. He said, Major, rousing, thoroughly professional Hollywood entertainment that will dazzle you with its recreations of historical events, take you inside the space capsule and the Houston Command Center, and leave you wondering where our heroes have gone. And he gave it a 3.5 out of 4. Not bad from Gene Siskel. The next one is from Roger Ebert. A powerful story, one of the year's best films told with great clarity and remarkable technical detail and acted without pumped up history. I'm going to screw up this word. Histrionics. I don't even know if that's a word. I don't even know if I've heard that word. Histrionics. Histrionics. Uh, But I do know what he's trying to say there. So they did a really great job, you know, telling the story. There were obviously some Hollywood elements that they did throw into it and some changes they made to the story just to kind of keep things going. But they were very true and honest to the story. And the actors and the way they portrayed these parts didn't take away from the what I believe he was trying to say, the history of the story. Well, apparently from what I heard, Tom Hanks was like the historian buff on the movie, trying to make everything as accurate as possible. I read the same thing, and I even made some notes on some of the stuff that he made Ron Howard go through. I'm surprised Ron Howard didn't just throw him off set half the time. (laughs) And then that's all I wrote down for critic reviews, and I know you said you didn't get any, so... Since you mentioned Ron Howard, let's move on to Ron Howard, the director of the movie. Okay, but I actually got one more thing I want to talk about Oh, you got one more thing, okay. Sorry. Um... I love the fact that uh, a lot of the sets were recreations and it was filmed on uh, movie sets there in California. Right. But they did do a lot of on-location filming at the Kennedy Space Center and the Johnson Space Center there in Houston. So having those historical elements and having access to those areas uh, really helped drive the history of that and the legitimacy of this production and wanting to recreate the story. In fact, it is said that this is the most accurate telling of any nasa story that's ever been done in a movie format nice and it's because they had the complete and utter um 
cooperation of NASA, people who were present in mission control and launch control and stuff like that, who were still alive at the time of filming, were uh, technical advisors on the film and things like that. So they had they were meticulous about every detail. So having just something as simple as being able to film on location at these places is an amazing thing. And then I oh yeah definitely. And I want to talk about the Oscars real quick. It was nominated for nine Oscars. Nine. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. It had only won for two. Yeah, that's crappy. Yeah. (laughs) It was nominated for Best Musical Score, Visual Effects, Set Design, Adapted Screenplay, Supporting Actress, Supporting Actor, Best Picture, Best Editing, and Best Sound. And it won for Best Editing and Best Sound. Now, there's a common misconception here, and I read it in three different articles, and I actually submitted a review on these three articles I read. All three articles inaccurately said that Tom Hanks was nominated for an Oscar for this role. He was not nominated for an Oscar. He had won the previous, not been nominated and won the previous two years for Philadelphia and Forrest Gump. But he was not nominated for this one. He wasn't even nominated for a Golden Globe. In fact, the two actors from the movie who were nominated for their acting abilities are Ed Harris and Kathleen Quinlan. So they were the two acting nominees uh, for this film. So I just wanted to put that out there. Tom was not nominated. Stop saying it was, people. (sighs) With that being said, you want to talk about Ron Howard. Let's go. Well, actually, while we're doing that real quick, let's see. So that would have been the 1996 Oscars? No, 1995. Wait. No, 96. Because I just Googled 96. Yeah, sorry. So the 1996 Oscars, the best uh, actor was... <laughs> so the actors oh wait hold on let me go back the actors nominated for the 1996 oscars over tom hanks for this movie which i think he should have been nominated were da, 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 uh, actor leading in the role the nominees were nicholas cage for leaving las vegas didn't you win? richard dreyfus mr mr holland's opus okay anthony hopkins for nixon okay sean penn Dead Man Walking, mm-hmm. and Massimo Torsi for The Postman. Mm-hmm. And yes, Nicolas Cage did win that year. That's a very interesting list of nominees for Best Actor. And I could kind of see it was probably a political game not to give Tom Hanks another nomination three, three years in, in a row. row. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, as much as we make fun of Nicolas Cage, that, that was a good movie, and he did deserve the award for that. Just saying. So... Supporting actor, though, this is actually a good a good category too. With the who's in it, um, so the nominees were James Cromwell for Babe, <laughs> Ed Harris Apollo thirteen, yeah, Brad Pitt for Twelve Monkeys, which I think he should have won an Oscar for. Oh, that agreed, movie. agreed. Um, Tim Roth for Rob Roy and Kevin Spacey for Usual Suspects, and Kevin Spacey won that year. Those are all except for Rob Roy. I'm not a huge fan of that, but uh. Those are all. Those are all great performances. I mean, I, I loved Ed Harris. Brad Pitt's Twelve Monkeys. Oh my! Oh, I love it. Ed Harris is great in this movie. But Brad Pitt and Twelve Monkeys, man, he should have won. Yeah, that that's. I mean, that's Usual Suspects role. is a good movie, but Brad Pitt killed it in Twelve Monkeys that year. Yes, he did. He did do a really great job in that movie. But I think that movie's on our list too. If it isn't, it's just got added. Yeah. 12 Monkeys is such a great movie. Uh, Talk about about a time-traveling story that, wow. 
Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mind bender. It is a mind bender. Absolutely. But those are those are some good nominees there. I, I can honestly, you know, as much as I enjoyed Ed Harris's uh, role in this film, and uh, I'm going to talk about him a little bit more as we get to that category. Compared to Kevin Spacey, he just didn't quite make the mark. Because Kevin Spacey did do a great job in The Usual Suspects. Oh and yeah. Definitely. You and I do agree that Brad Pitt probably did deserve the Oscar that year for that because it was a little bit better than Kevin Spacey. Again, you know, sometimes the Oscars likes to give the awards to people who may not have earned it. To Leonardo DiCaprio? May not have earned it for that <laughs> year. I, I don't think Kevin Spacey had been nominated before that. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. That I'm not sure. We're... So, while we're still talking about the Oscars... The best pictures that year were Apollo 13, Babe, The Postman, Sense and Sensibility, and Braveheart. Braveheart won. Yep, Braveheart won. I mean, hands down. I mean, come on. Out of that list, Braveheart was the better movie. Yeah. It's cool. I didn't realize that Babe was nominated for so much. I didn't realize it was nominated <laughs> for so much either. Yeah. That's best so picture, weird. Best actor. I mean, I like James Carmel. I think he's a good actor. Babe. Babe. Pig in the City. That'll do, pig. That'll do. That'll do. I think the more famous line, though, that everybody would recognize is, that'll do, donkey. That'll do. Shrek. I was actually watching that yesterday. Yeah. That's why I just said in a... I just realized I said that in a... Like a... Scott Jackson. (laughs) Yeah, because I was watching Shrek yesterday. It was on at work. (laughs) That'll do, donkey. That'll do. That'll do. All right. So you, you wanted to talk about Ron Howard. So when we were going through our uh, movie talk last week or whatever it was, I guess a month ago, um, Ron Howard, I don't know how I spaced on him, but he's, he should be in my top five. I love Ron Howard. Some of the movies he's done, he did Splash, he did Cocoon, Willow, Parenthood, Backdraft, Ransom, A Beautiful Mind, Da Vinci Code. He even did Solo recently. And I also heard that... Uh, He's starting a Willow TV series that he's going to, I guess, produce or direct or something. Interesting. Yeah. No, Ron Howard is going to be on Disney Plus. Oh. Okay. Um, <laughs> I honestly don't know how I feel about that. What, the Willow TV series? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know what they're going to do. Yeah. I mean, the movie came out in 88. And with Val Kilmer and uh, Warwick, uh, Davis. What's his last name? Warwick Davis, yes. And they're a lot older now. What? Yeah, a lot older. So I don't know. Um, but no, I mean Ron Howard's name has been attached to a lot of things. I mean, he he has grown up in this industry, you know, being a kid. Star oh yeah, and stuff I mean, like I even wrote out his acting Griffith, stuff. He did you know, uh, Happy Days. Andy Griffith. He did. Let's see. From sixty to sixty-eight, he did Andy Griffith Show, two hundred and thirty-eight episodes. Mm-hmm. And then he did one hundred and seventy episodes of Happy Days. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know if any of y'all watched Arrested Development, but the voiceover every every episode was Ron Howard. I remember reading that, yeah. 83 episodes. I like Arrested Development. That's a funny show. It got a little quirky at times, but yeah, it's a funny show. It did. Uh but uh, yeah, no, Ron Howard, you know, we shouldn't sleep on Ron Howard. He's a he's a great he's a great director, he's a great storyteller. You know, he's got this way of, he, he's got an idea in his head, and if he wants to tell the story in this certain way, he's going to do it despite what everybody else is going to tell him to do. And then he's also behind movies that, you know, we all love, but were critically panned. You know, we got The Grinch, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Jim Carrey. Yeah. 
I love that movie, but it wasn't very critically successful. Solo, I'm not going to say I liked the movie. It wasn't very successful either. So, I mean, you know, he has put out, he has been behind ones that haven't been, you know. I liked the movie. I really did. I thought it was a good backstory. Um, I'm not saying it's the greatest of all the movies they've done. Like, of all the spinoffs so far, Rogue One by far is the best. Agreed. Solo was a good movie. I liked the way they, how they told how Han and Chewie kind of came together. And then Donald Glover playing Lando, I thought, did a really good job. Um, The movie could have probably been better, yes. But for what it was, I enjoyed it. I can't I can't blame Ron Howard for the way the movie turned out though because he inherited No, he came in late too. Yeah, he inherited it. So he had to go back and do some reshoots and stuff like that. But um so I actually I just blame, you know, Disney for screwing that. Oh, just blame Disney for everything. Yeah, blame, <laughs> blame Disney for everything. Uh it's kinda like, you know, everyone wants to be mad at Joss Whedon for the way Justice League turned out. It's like, well, you know what? He came in at the final hour to finish a movie and he wasn't... Of course he's not going to want to do it Zack Snyder's way. He's a completely different filmmaker than Zack Snyder, so he's going to go back and do his own way. And no, you don't have to like it. You don't have to agree with it. I mean, Justice League was not a great movie. And I am actually interested to see the Zack Snyder cut when it comes out next year. But, you know, because... I'm not a huge fan of, a fan of Zack Snyder either, but he had already started something, so I wanted to see what his original idea was here. I want to see it come to a conclusion. But, uh, but at the same time, you're going to have his original idea, and you're still not going to have all of what he wanted in it because he wasn't there for all the shooting. So he's going he might back, have the first part. He's going, he's going back and what? He's going back and reshooting some of it. Oh, really? I thought he was just re-editing it with, uh, with the footage he's already filmed. No, some of the... In some of the articles I've been reading lately is that he has been said to have... Uh, he's going to start planning some reshoots. Not maybe, maybe not with principal cast or anything like that, but some resho- uh, reshoots for the movie to uh, help fill in the gaps of his story. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, I mean... So you can't sit there and blame these directors per se for how a final product turns out when they inherited the movie. But, you you know, unfortunately, it is going to kind of be held against them. This is something that is going to be on Ron Howard's resume for, you know, forever. You know, he he is he is the credited director of Solo. Right, right. So Zack Snyder can go back and redo a movie that's already come out his own way. Why can't we have... Three new Star Wars movies. <laughs> I keep hearing they're, they're talking about doing that. Just wiping out these last three movies made and making new ones and getting George Lucas behind it. Uh, well, you and I have talked about this. I, I don't want to hear George Lucas whining about how these movies turned out. He's the one who decided no, I to get step it. away I and he sold the rights. And he's like, I want a new generation of filmmakers to... F- Continue telling my story. Yes. That's your own damn fault, man. No, 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 no. Yes, yes, completely understand that. I just don't think he thought it was going to be this crappy. He watches like, <laughs> what the hell is this crap? And he's like, no. Well, and so I, I would, can't... I would love to see, I would love to see three more movies made in his vision, the way he wanted them done, which should have been that way in the first place. He should have never sold the the rights to Disney because Disney's just going to go like they're doing, pop it out movies every year, and that's why. The Force Awakens wasn't that great. It was pretty much A New Hope. But 
I would have liked to see J.J. Abrams continue to the next movie instead of getting somebody else in because you wanted to pop it out so fast you didn't have time to let J.J. Abrams edit the first movie and then go direct the second movie. And that's 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 a combination of Disney and Kathleen Kennedy there, not to get too far off subject like we already are, but uh, yes, they, they really made the mistake here when they chose the person who was going to relaunch Star Wars, the Skywalker saga, that is the person who needed to stick with it through the end. So when they decided on J.J. Abrams to write the story and direct the movie, J.J. Abrams needed to be there for the remainder of it. Again, exactly. I'm not complaining about Ryan Johnson. Ryan Johnson came in and told the story that Ryan Johnson decided he wanted to tell. But that's the that's the thing, though. You don't want to do that because then there's not there's going to be so many continuity issues. And this is the way I want to. So that's one thing I do love about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You have so many different writers and so many different directors on 23 movies, and they all came together. They well, all came together perfectly. And that's, you know, that's a testament to not just these uh, screenwriters and these directors. That's a testament to Kevin Feige. Yes, definitely. He he was the mastermind behind all of this. So to he it was up to him as the head of Marvel production to make sure that that happened. And that's where Kathleen Kennedy failed. She did not have enough she either had too much control, and it, that's what bogged it down, or she didn't have enough control, and that's what bogged it down. But there, unfortunately, we, the movies are made. They exist. We've seen them multiple times. And yes, we can go back and, I guess, retroactively remove them from canon. But I don't know they're still there. Them. Yeah, exactly. They're still going to exist. They're there. Just make three other ones, and fans can choose which ones they want to watch, I guess, if you want to put it that way, you know? I mean, it's not unheard of for franchises to do this. I mean, Halloween is in the middle of doing this right now. So when that latest Halloween movie came out back in, what was that, 2018? 2019? 2018. Yeah, something like that. That was retroactively removing films from canon. So it goes Halloween... Halloween 2, and then this Halloween. So everything that happens from Halloween 3 and after is its own kind of like universe, basically. It's its own timeline. I love the, I love the whole theory of timelines to explain things. So now they've just created its own timeline. So yeah, these movies still exist, but here's the new canon timeline that we're going to follow. So you're just creating different... Yeah. Uh, just creating different lines, and you can follow both, or you can choose to follow one or the other. So with Star Wars, what they're going to do is, if they do make any more Star Wars movies, or they do try to retroactively go back and say, well, this is how it really should have been, all you have to do is think of it as, like, in another timeline, this is what happened, and then in this timeline, this is what happened. And just, we're just going to have to accept that. Pretty much. All right. But, hey, anyways, we're talking about Apollo 13. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're, we're uh, still talking about space, technically. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. We're not, we're not oh, too far off. Oh, man. What? My favorite space movie. What? Oh, I'm going to have to, okay. So, number one is Martian. Number two is Empire Strikes Back. Oh, you didn't list Star Wars movie. Oh. I know. Actually, I have Empire Strikes Back to my seventh movie, like my second favorite movie ever. <laughs> and I didn't even mention it. That's okay. I think uh, I think Star Wars fans everywhere will forgive you. 
What else do you want to add about Ron Howard and his contribution? Uh, I think we to can move on because we just talked on <laughs> a lot of stuff there. Um, he actually went to high school with Rene Russo. Oh, that's yeah, interesting. I guess that's kind of cool. Huh. I like Rene Russo. So do I. She's an underrated um, actress. Um, very much so. So then let's move on to the next category. How has this movie impacted your life or influenced your love for movies? I want to hear your response first. Okay. Well, this movie has been a personal favorite of mine for many, many years. I mean, I really... Let's see. This movie came out in 1995. How old was I? I was nine? Nine? Yeah. I was nine. So, I mean, I remember, you know, watching this movie when it came out on, you know, on video. I don't... We didn't go see it in theaters. Uh, when it came out on video and stuff like that. And I loved the movie. I thought it was just awesome. And I think that's what really got me liking... Um, space movies so that's the way it's kind of really impacted my life is not just space movies in general because mom and dad raised uh raised me on you know raised us on star trek and star wars and stuff like that too but it impacted my love of more historic not historically i guess reality grounded space movies things that involve nasa and stuff like that um you know so apollo 13 space camp um Flight of the Navigator. Thank you. I was just, I couldn't <laughs> think of it. I was like, I saw Sarah Jessica Parker and her stupid pink hair, but I couldn't think of the name of the movie, Flight of the Navigator. I've been Thank meaning you. to rewatch that. I've, I've seen it on Disney Plus and I've been meaning to sit down and rewatch it. I just haven't done it yet. But I really have not seen that movie since the 90s. You, you need to sit down and rewatch it because that was on my that was on my big rewatch list when Disney Plus uh, relaunched or launched. But I mean, so that's I how I really want to rewatch Space Camp, too, actually. I know Space Camp is a great movie, that. too. And, you know, rest in peace, Kelly Preston. But I mean, that's how this movie has really impacted my life. It's or impacted my love for, or influenced my love for movies. God, I'm really mixing up my words. Influenced my love for movies because it just really drove home that idea that I, I really just, I find that kind of stuff fascinating. I love the whole behind the th scenes thing uh, of NASA and all the technical stuff that goes into it. And that it really fed into my love of it when we moved to Florida. And I actually got to go to the Kennedy Space Center and do all those different tours and stuff like that. I mean, I've stood on the uh, several launch pads where they launched Apollo cool. missions and things like that. And just that history and stuff. So that's how much I love this movie. And that's how much it's influenced my love of space movies and impacted my life. Because I'm still fascinated by stuff that happens with NASA. I mean, now with the SpaceX program happening and things. So... Apollo 13, I can't, I, I don't know if I can truly, truly credit it as the film that started that fascination, considering like movies like Flight of the Navigator and Space Camp came out before that, but I think Apollo 13 was definitely that movie that uh, amplified it. Well said. Thank you. What is your answer to that question? I don't know if I really have a influenced my love for movies, but this might be one of the first movies that I remember being based on a true story. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it it was a movie that I could watch that I knew actually happened at some point was pretty cool. Yeah. And of course, when you're a kid, I was what, if you were nine, then I was 13. Mm -hmm. um, when you're a kid, you don't, if, if I watch this movie, I believe everything that happened in this movie is what really happened, you know? Yeah. <laughs> every, every, every line of dialogue that they said is what they really said, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't. Not till I got older did I realize, oh, Hollywood takes liberties in doing stuff. But, but yeah, one of, probably one of the first movies that I remember actually being based on, on true events, which I thought was pretty cool. I didn't know that they did that, you know? 
yeah, he's like actually telling history here. Right. And, you know, and that that's the hard thing about telling history is that, yeah, you're telling something that's happened in real life. And, you know, chances are in 1995, you still have people who are alive during uh, the whole oh, yeah, Apollo definitely. 13 fiasco and disaster. And well, this whole movie is based on Jim Lovell's book, The Lost Moon. Well, yes and no, actually. So Jim Lovell pitched the idea of this book to publishers and stuff like that. But he had only written well, yeah, they, like a chapter or right. so of the book, and then he, when they Ron got the Howard, movie rights, yeah, before the book even came out. <laughs> yeah, so it, it, they kind of influenced each other. So I mean, it's, yes, it's Jim Lovell's story, and it's based off of his book, quote unquote. But also, right. you know, he made some changes to the way he wrote his book because of the movie as well. Uh, one of the biggest changes was changing the title of his book. So the original title of his book was Lost Moon. And because of the movie, he changed it to Apollo 13, so there was, uh, you know, so it was synchronized, you know. Right. But, uh, so yeah, uh, it was based off of the um, book that he was writing, so I mean, obviously, he was still alive, a lot of the people who were there were still alive, but even as Americans or people in the world, there were people who were glued to their televisions watching this thing unfold. So now you're telling a movie, or you know, you're watching a movie of the events that you've already seen. So how do you capture an audience that's already lived through something? I mean, it's one thing to make a movie now, like about the Revolutionary War, or about the Civil War, or something like that, you know, that tries to be historically accurate. You know, you're not going to find anybody who was there. So it's still an interesting story to tell. But when you're telling a story about recent history you've got to find a way to cap recapture that audience and it's not just through the nostalgia of it by playing you know walter cronkite's uh excerpts from his news reporting of the situation or you know uh showing the video of lance armstrong's first step onto the moon it's it's finding a fresh way to recapture that audience and that's where ron howard and his genius stepped in, and he's like, I, I've got to capture them through things that they would not have seen on the television during this event right. that's happening. So, you know, an up-close-and-personal look at the launch of Apollo 13, what was happening behind the scenes uh, of Apollo 13. Uh, you know, obviously, not everything that happened up in that space capsule was... Uh, matter of public record at the time so it's not like the video camera was rolling and everybody's just watching these astronauts trying to survive up there so you know try to tell that story too so well of course he also had jim lovell and uh ken madley and stuff he had them like tell their side of what happened there so he kind of put pieces together and make a movie out of it exactly you know so and, and that's what makes a historically movie a historical movie like this a great watch whether you see whether you lived through it or you didn't live through it because there's something that you can take away from it that you probably oh yeah exactly like didn't you take away said, from so, it the first time right because you're watching it on tv and you're getting what the news is telling you you're not seeing what's happening in mission control you're not mm -hmm. seeing what's actually happening in the space capsule mm -hmm. um you know you're not seeing what's happening with jim lovell's family you know stuff like that yeah exactly exactly um before we move on to the next category, actually, I don't know why I wrote this note here, but I'm going to go ahead and talk about it. Interesting little factoid about this movie. Uh, two of my top five favorite films happen in space. Uh, so this one and Event Horizon. And they both mm. star Kathleen Quinlan. 
I just thought that was an interesting little factoid. Huh. Cool. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to the cast of Apollo. So 13. the way I wanted to do this, okay, if you don't mind me taking over, go ahead. Is I wanted to talk about the actual person first. Oh, because each okay, each yeah, because this is based on a true story. So Jim Lovell, who's Jim Lovell? Jim Lovell. So he currently, is a captain. Oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> well, currently he's still alive, ninety-two years old. Uh, he's an astronaut. He was a naval aviator and a mechanical engineer. Uh, as command module pilot of Apollo Eight, he became one of the first three humans to fly in orbit the moon. Mm-hmm. First person to fly into space four times, and he's been a recipient of the Cong- uh, Congressional Space Medal of Honor and the Presidential Medal of Honor. That's awesome. And then we go on to who played Jim Lovell, which would be Tom Hanks. And do we really need to go into Tom Hanks here? <laughs> I wrote down movies for Tom Hanks, which I really don't even need to say him. No. But I stopped at 98 because I already had like 15 great movies, you know? <laughs> and, you know, we kind of spent uh, our last episode talking about Tom Hanks, too. So, I mean, Tom Hanks is an absolutely terrific actor. He can embody... I mean, we've seen it throughout his career. He can embody almost anybody and convince you that he is that person. So even okay, uh, even Jim you. Lovell, you know, said that Tom Hanks nailed it. I mean, sorry. I got a question for you. Yes. Your top three favorite Tom Hanks movies. Well, Apollo 13. One. Um, God, that's hard. That's like asking me what my really favorite is. child is. Um. <laughs> <sighs> All right. Well, I, I I love Apollo 13. Um, it is a hard one because I'm looking at these like there's the 80s movies that I really like, like Dragnet. I love that movie. Uh, the Burbs, which is a great movie. Um, nobody ever talks about the Burbs and Dragnet. And then you got the Money Pit and Big. I'm big, man. You know, such a good movie. it's funny you mentioned the Money Pit because I was actually just in here struggling with that. It's like, would I list that as one of my favorites? Because I absolutely love that movie. I do love the Money Pit. Uh why do you have to ask me such hard questions? Um, you ask me a question every movie. I know, I know. I'm never prepared when people turn it around on me. Um, okay, all right, all right. So I, I, I just, I got to stop being wishy-washy about it. So Apollo 13, number one. Uh, I would have to say the Money Pit is definitely there. I just don't know if I'd label it as number two or number three. And then, as strange as this may sound... I would definitely not list Forrest Gump in this. Nah, see, I'm actually sitting here thinking of what my top three would be as well. And I want to put Forrest Gump in there, but at the same time, I don't. I don't. You know? I, like, I, I can confidently I say put, it's in my top five, but I don't know if it's in my top three. Right. <laughs> but I want to put Castaway in there, and I want to put Saving Private Ryan in there. There you go. That's exactly where I was struggling. I was like, I know Saving Private Ryan is definitely going to be in that top three somewhere. I want to put The Green Mile in there. It's such a good movie, too. Ask me what my least favorite know. Tom Hanks What's movie he? is. What's your least favorite Tom The Lady Killers. Oh, that movie. That movie was so, was so awful. I saw that movie in the theater. <laughs> I saw that in the theater. I was like, really? <laughs> you know, it's a remake of an old Alec Guinness film, and the, right. the original was just phenomenal, but this remake was just like, what the heck were we watching here? Um, yeah. So honestly, what am I... I have to put the Burbs in one of my top three favorite Tom Hanks movies. I love the Burbs. Such a good movie. I haven't seen it in forever. I barely remember it. And then and you, you got a league of their own. 
Yeah, a league of their own. Oh There's gosh. no crying in baseball. Such an iconic role. Uh, and you got big. You got Turner and Hooch. Sleepless in Turner Seattle. You've got mail. Joe versus the volcano. You know. Joe versus the volcano. I love that movie. There are just so many great Tom Hanks films. Uh, and you know, Toy Story. all the ones that we just named, every single one of those movies came out before the year 2000. He yeah, still had a whole other career after 2000. I know, but I mean, like, that's, the, I call that the height of Tom Hanks' career. I mean, yeah. yes, he's making movies still, but, uh, like, that's, uh, that's like primo Tom Hanks, late 80s to, like, throughout the 90s. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. So he did receive the Distinguished Public Service Award, the U.S. Navy's highest civilian honor, on Veterans Day 1999 for his work on Saving Private Ryan. We're talking that Tom Hanks, cool. right? Yes. For some reason, I thought you yeah, switched back to Jim Lovell, and I'm like, wait, what? No, 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 no. We're talking about Tom Hanks. <laughs> so Tom Hanks. Uh, all right, all right, cool, cool. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, let's see. He, he said that uh, the help of a nearby ice cream shop helped him gain 30 pounds for the role in a league of their own. That's funny. And he lost 55 pounds in Castaway. Yeah, because he was, a, you know, uh, they put a year in between shooting what you know shooting the before part and then yeah Yeah. yeah um and he he had to lose a lot of weight for that but i was also thinking of how much weight he lost during philadelphia he was already a skinny actor at that time right he lost a lot of weight for philadelphia as well i got a casting what if too Ooh, late on he was considered for peter banning in hook Sorry, not sorry. Robin Williams. No, yeah, was Robin Williams way was the best choice. Yes, I mean, again, you know, we've said it a million times. If Tom Hanks would have done it, and we would have said Robin Williams was the casting, what if we would have been like, oh no, Tom Hanks was the yeah, best. Exactly. Blah, blah, no. blah blah blah. But yeah. Robin Williams killed it. Uh what else do you have on Jim Lovell or that's all? Tom that's Hanks? all. That's all I've got. Tom on Tom Hanks. Okay, I, I do want a whole lot because everybody knows who Tom Hanks is. So. Of course, I do have a little factoid about uh, Jim Lovell. So he did have a cameo in the movie. Yes, it was right at the end when they recovered the capsule from the sea. They're on what is supposed to be the USS Iwo Jima. Ron Howard and the producers asked uh, Jim Lovell if he wanted to be an ad, you know the admiral who's welcoming the welcoming welcoming the astronauts on board. And he's like, oh, I'd love to play the part, but I retired as a captain, so I'm going to play a captain. Yeah, that's so cool. He put on his actual captain's uniform and cameoed that part. So I thought that was pretty cool. Definitely. All right, who's next on your list? So next we have Fred Hayes. Frederick Hayes. Go ahead. Fred Hayes is currently 86 years old. Uh, He is a NASA astronaut, an engineer, a fighter pilot with the U.S. Marine Corps and the U.S. Air Force. He is one of 24 people to have flown to the moon. Uh, he went on to fly space shuttle approach and landing tests after Apollo 13, and he retired from NASA in 1979. And Bill Paxton is who played Fred Hayes. The late Bill Paxton. Which we've already talked about him once in our True Lies podcast. Indeed. Because I have, I have written on here, see True Lies notes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> Why did I have to rewrite everything again? <laughs> yeah. No, again, we don't have to rehash um, Bill Paxton. Right. You know, everyone knows what he's been in and stuff like that. In fact, he's been in another one of my favorite films, Tombstone. Um, yes, Tombstone. I love that movie. movie. But uh, Bill Paxton, he just always does a phenomenal job in the movies that he does appear in. And this one was more of an understated role for him, quite honestly. Yeah. This one didn't require a whole lot. For, um, there are scenes where he got emotional and stuff like that, but the, the, his character was definitely a lot more, and played a lot more laid back. So, uh, I don't know, out of the three main people you see on film, Tom Hanks, Bill Paxton, and Kevin Bacon, who I guess we're going to be talking about here in a moment, you know, he he's kind of like that one... I hate to use the term, so forgive me, fans of Bill Paxton, but he's kind of like a background character a lot throughout the film. I've always thought that, too. I really have always thought that in every not not in just this movie, but everything he does for the most part. Yeah, I mean, there are a like few Tombstone, things like he stands he's the, out. He's the, the third brother in Tombstone. He's uh, not in True Lies all that much, but he does a good job. Even in The Terminator, he's in a very short part. He was in Aliens for a very short part. He's kind of like that background guy that everybody knows that could be a leading guy, but never really seems to be the leading guy. But then when he does take the leading role, Twister, you know, he does a great job with it. Twister, yes. Oh, yeah, of course. And here we are talking about Bill Paxton when we said we weren't going to talk about Bill Paxton. (laughs) (laughs) No, he's a great... He was a great actor. Um, Even in that show, uh, Big Love. Uh, Did you... Have you ever seen that? Yeah, I haven't seen that. I never watched it. I I keep hearing it's good. Um, I need to... I've seen a few episodes of it. It, It's phenomenal. It is. He's just... He's a great... uh, was and he was actor. actually the lead of a show when he died too. Yeah, yeah. They only they only made it through the first season, and then he passed away. And I don't even remember what show that was. So, Fred Hayes and Bill Paxton. So next, I have Jack Swigert. He died December twenty seventh, nineteen eighty two, at the age of fifty one. He was a test pilot, a mechanical engineer, aerospace engineer, a U.S. Air Force pilot a NASA astronaut and politician. Mm-hmm. After leaving NASA, he ran for the Senate, the Senate, but lost in a primary election. Later ran for Congress, but while uh, running was diagnosed with cancer. He won the election for Colorado's new 6th district, but died before being sworn in. Wow, kind of a sad story. Yeah, it does suck. So the actor who played Jack Swigert is Kevin Bacon. I believe this is Kevin Bacon's first mention on our show. Besides the not his first mention, no. Well, aside <laughs> the illusion of the six, seven ways to Kevin six Bacon. degrees of Kevin, yeah, no, no. All right, oh uh, yeah, six degrees as of an Kevin actor. Bacon. But yes, he's... first mention as yes. an actor, yes. <laughs> All right, so Kevin Bacon. So I wrote a couple of movies he'd been in: uh, Friday the Thirteenth, um, Footloose, Tremors, Flatliners, JFK, A Few Good Men. Love A Few Good oh, Men. Great movie. Uh, the Air Up There. Remember that movie? Back in the 90s? Yes. Where he goes to Africa and plays a basketball yes, player? Yes, I, I remember you watching that a lot. <laughs> I liked that movie growing up. In fact, I want to find that movie and watch it. I bet you, it might be on Disney+, Plus. I wonder. Oh. Anyways, uh, Hollow Man, Mystic River, and he recently did X-Men First Class. I uh, say recently, that was nine, I ten know. years ago almost. <laughs> but... I mean, he, he, so, he, shows up in, he still shows up in things randomly. He does, yeah. So you play this game a lot on the show. A lot of people play this game. Uh-huh. Six Degrees of Separation yes. of Kevin Bacon. Yes. Do you know how it originated? Honestly, I don't. As much as I play that game, I don't know where that came from. 
So since you play that game a lot, I actually looked up how it originated. Okay. Uh, in January 1994, in an interview Kevin Bacon mentioned while discussing the film River Wild that he worked with everybody in Hollywood or somebody who's worked with them. Following this, a lengthy news group thread which was headed Kevin Bacon is the center of the universe came out. Four Albright College students invented the game that became known as Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Nice. So just by one quote that Kevin Bacon said came this big, huge game, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yeah, you can actually use Google as a tool to play that game because they have... Oh, yeah. Uh, that's fun. But uh, yeah, I didn't know that. That's pretty awesome. And that's all I wrote down for Kevin Bacon, just the game. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right, who's next? Do you have anything on Kevin Bacon? No, I got nothing. Oh, okay. Uh, next, we have Ken Maddenly, who is currently 84 years old. Okay. He was a naval officer and aviator and uh, aeronautical engineer. Aeronautical? Test pilot. Uh, yes, that is what I... But <laughs> my U looks like a V. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that doesn't sound right, but yes, aeronautical engineer. Alrighty. <laughs> a test pilot and a rear admiral in the U.S. Navy. Oh, I didn't know that. What's a rear admiral? I, I was going to ask you this because you're in the Navy. What's a rear admiral? Admiral. I mean, all right, so there's four different ranks of admiral in the Navy. And so uh, depending on okay. it, one star and two stars are rear admirals. Oh, okay. So it, I don't know which one he was, a one star or a two star. I wasn't sure if he was like in the back of the boat or... <laughs> <laughs> You got a front admiral and a rear admiral. I don't know. <laughs> um, actually, you know, Anyways, okay. it, it's been so uh, long. Let me just fact check myself on that before I like really. I'm pretty sure I'm right, but it's been so long. In the United States since 1984, there have been two ranks with the title of Rear Admiral. Rear Admiral Lower, which is a one-star, and Rear Admiral, um, which is a two-star. So yeah, I don't know if, uh, if he was a one-star or a two-star. Yeah, okay. it didn't say. It just said Rear Admiral of the Navy and Admiral. Okay, well, at least I, at least I was right. <clears throat> okay, moving on. Ken Mattingly. Cool. So as a lot of people know, because it's in the movie, he was held back from Apollo 13 three days prior to launch due to exposure to German mm -hmm. measles, which he did not contract. Uh, he later flew command module pilot for Apollo 16 and made 64 lunar orbits. During the Apollo 16 return to Earth, Madeline reported performed an extravehicular activity, or what they call a spacewalk, mm -hmm. to retrieve film cassettes from the exterior of the spacecraft. It is still... Uh, it was the second one done in history and still remains to this day only one of three ever done. Yeah, that is interesting. And that's all I have on Ken Maddenly, which was played by Gary Sinise. Ah, Z1, Z only, Gary Sinise. Which I really don't have a whole lot on Gary Sinise. He hasn't really been in a whole lot of big movies. I mean, besides Forrest Gump, Apollo 13, Ransom, he went to TV and did 197 episodes of CSI New York and uh, 26 episodes of Criminal Minds Beyond Borders. He does have a band called the Lieutenant Dan Band. I heard about that. It has 13 members in the band, and he plays the bass. <laughs> the Lieutenant Dan Band. Lieutenant Dan Band. He was uh, nominated for an Oscar in Forrest Gump. He's kind of an underrated actor. 
He's kind of an underrated guy. He does a lot of behind the scenes stuff and he's a huge advocate for the United States military. Um, oh yeah. Veterans well, affairs the band, and stuff like they, that. They would tour the USO and all that. Mm-hmm. From what I understand, he's like the, one of the most down to earth actors in Hollywood. So, so the nominees that year for supporting actor were Samuel L. Jackson for Pulp Fiction, Chaz Palomarenti for Bullets Over Broadway, uh, Paul Schofield for Chris Show, Gary Sinise for Forrest Gump, and Martin Lando for Edward. Martin Lando one. Yep. Such a weird movie. Samuel L. Jackson was so good that year too. In Pulp Fiction. Yeah, he was good in that movie. I don't got anything to Anywho, add that's on all I got on Gary Sinise. Sinise. Yeah. I only wrote down one more, um, which was uh, Gene Kranz, played by Ed Harris. Okay. So Gene Kranz is currently 86 years old. He was a aerospace engineer, a fighter pilot, a NASA flight director and manager. And he served as NASA's second chief flight director, directing missions of the Gemini and Apollo programs, including the first lunar, lunar landing a mission for Apollo 11. And he's also a recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And in 2010, he was ranked... Uh, let's see, there was a Space Foundation survey in 2010 that ranked him the number two most popular space hero. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, he was played by Ed Harris. Ed Harris, such he a great actor. Four not Oscar nominations and zero wins because nobody likes him. Yeah. Um. So Apollo thirteen, Truman Show, Pollock, and The Hours. I don't know if I ever saw The Hours. It's not. I mean, it was an okay movie. It's, it had uh, Julianne Moore in it. Um, Nicole Kidman. And I can't think of the who the third okay. person was. I remember Nicole Kidman being in yeah, it. Yeah, she had the fake I, I think I she won an Oscar, or she got nominated or won an Oscar for that role as well. I want to say I saw it when it came out, but I don't remember much about it. I don't remember who the third woman was in that movie, but um, but Ed Harris, uh, he's been yeah, in a he's lot been of great, stuff. a lot of great films. Uh, in, in fact, films associated with this is not his first space film. Oh no, definitely not the right stuff. The right stuff, and well, I was gonna say the abyss, but that takes place underwater. Yeah, that, so that's not space. Eh, it's kind of space because it's aliens and stuff like that, but it's under right. all underwater. So yeah, nobody actually goes into space. But uh, yeah, right. Uh, the right stuff, which is uh, another one of my favorites, like historically fun space films. You know, that's like how NASA started and stuff like that. So yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I still I still rewatch that movie quite often. It's a long movie. Uh, he was also in The Firm, mm-hmm. uh, The Rock, mm-hmm. uh, The Truman Show, and currently he's in Westworld. He is. Which I watched the first season, and I just haven't had a chance to watch the second season. I really like the first season. Um, I just need to catch up and watch the second season. Yeah. Um, he was also in Snowpiercer, the movie. Yes, he was. Uh, Which they just came on the TV show up and wanted to watch. Yes, they did. Uh, Legendary Glenn Ross. Mm-hmm. And there's one more, and I just... Oh, I can't think of it. I mean, there's several more, but there was one more that I like him in. I just can't think of it off the top of my head. But Ed Harris is a good actor. Definitely. Yes, sir. So that was all you had written down for actors, huh? Yes. Okay. So we're going to do some honorable mentions. Of course, uh, the first one being Kathleen Quinlan, who plays Marilyn Lovell. Uh, Tom Hanks' wife in the movie. 
Uh, she was nominated for a uh, best supporting actor or actress for this movie. She's been in she's been in quite a few films actually. You know, the '90s was yeah, her big has. heyday, uh, including you know Event Horizon. Uh, she was. <sighs> Do you remember that really? Like it was it, one of those B movies, but like I think it was straight to video. Zeus and Roxanne about the dolphin and the dog. No. Oh, okay. She was in that. she was in that um so big shout out to her she's been in a lot of uh fun films and she's a great actress there was uh there was a reason i wrote this down why did i write this down uh so the one the girl who played the older daughter barbara mary kate i'm not even going to try to say her last name shell heart alert shell heart yes she hasn't been in a whole lot. She's only been in minor roles here and here there. But something that I found interesting, and I completely forgot she was in it, she was in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Yes, she was. I, I just completely forgot about that. So other shout-outs go to um, Ron Howard's mother, who played Blanche Lovell. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bryce Dallas Howard was actually in the movie, too. Oh, she was? She was a brief cameo... Well, of course, she was only like maybe, see, if I was 13, I think she's my age, so she would have been 13. I think we were born the same year. So she would have been 13, and she was uh, when uh, the night before the launch, when the families are like standing on the other side of the road from them, mm-hmm. she's in that crowd. Oh. Okay, so he's... Like, she doesn't have any speaking things like, or anything. Easily she's missed. Just, she's just there. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I saw that. I, didn't, see, I had no idea until I was doing the research, and I saw that. And then when I watched it, I was like, oh, look, there she is. Nice. Um, yeah. Tracy Reiner, who played, uh, Fred Hayes's wife, Mary Hayes, uh, people will recognize her from A League of Their Own. Yes. Uh, and then shout outs to some people who had some significant roles and they always have like, they always show up as a minor role somewhere. Uh, Chris Ellis, who plays Deke Slayton. Uh, he just mm-hmm. always pops up in these minor roles throughout films. Space movie. He's, he pops up in space movie. Yes, he does. Quite often. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've noticed that. Joe Spano, who played uh, the NASA director at the time. He's in a lot of episodes of NCIS. Yes, he is. And of course, I want to shout out is Clint Howard, Ron Howard's brother, because basically of Ron Howard's making a movie, Clint shows up. The last person I wanted to shout out was the kid who played uh, Jim Lovell's son, Jeffrey Lovell. The kid hasn't done hardly anything since like the mid 90s, but he is well known uh, for playing this role, and he was also in the role uh, that movie where he played the autistic kid. I <sighs> can't think of the name of the movie. All of a sudden, it had Bruce Willis in it. Mercury Rising. Mercury Rising. Thank you. Yeah, he was also the autistic kid in Mercury Rising. And he was in a uh, Kindergarten Cop too. <laughs> I did forget about that. But uh, that's all I got for honorable mention. So that is the cast of Apollo Thirteen. Cool. We're one Good hour enough. into this thing, and. <laughs> That's because we talked about Star Wars. Yes, we did. And, you know, there's some cuts we got to make. So I guess more 50 minutes into this. Star Wars. I'm not going to cut out Star Wars. Oh, no. Yeah, my my, my stupid cuts. Don't worry. All right. So now that we've (laughs) talked about all the actors and characters in the film, who was your favorites? Like, so who was your favorite actor slash male character, uh, actress slash female character? Ed Harris. Uh huh. I just rewatching it yesterday. And just, I don't know. One thing I, I, I like about actors who make, who act with their face, with their facial expression. Mm-hmm. I really like that. Because that means 
I don't know if I don't know if they're directed to do it that way or if they just do it themselves. Like this is how I should play this, but I've always enjoyed watching how someone plays a certain scene with their expression. Mm-hmm. And I think Ed Harris did a really good job in this movie of that. He did absolutely. In fact, I remember reading somewhere that uh, he was watching um, actual footage that was recorded there in Mission Control of. Um, the original Gene Krantz and stuff like that, studying his reactions and stuff like that, listening to the audio of uh, all the conversations and stuff that were going on because he wanted to try to recreate that kind of um, emotion that Gene had. So, you know, he, he talks calm and collected and stuff like that. But then, like you said, it's all in the face. You know, you could see the worry in his face. You can see the concern. You can see the doubt that things are going on, despite what he's saying out loud to everybody in the room. His face is telling another story, and I think Ed Harris did a really great job with that. Oh, yes, definitely. That's a good choice. Who's your uh, favorite uh, female? No, you have, have to choose one. Kathleen <laughs> <laughs> Quinlan. Kathleen Quinlan. There you yeah. go. <laughs> Basically, I said the same thing. Um, when it came to actor, I chose Ed Harris and Gary Sinise. So for me, it was a tie. Uh, everything you said about Ed Harris, absolutely 100% correct. I agree with you. I don't have anything to add. But I like Gary Sinise in this movie as well because he is the hero of the film. He's the hero of the story. But he's the background hero. Of the story. So, right. yes, your heroes are the three men who survived and made it back to Earth. But without him, without Ken Mattingly, you weren't going to have that story. So, and I really feel like Gary Sinise captured the severity of that situation, the importance of the situation, and stuff like that. And, you know, and you can see the hurt that I guess I would assume Ken Mattingly felt by being scrubbed from the mission. And you oh, know, yeah. three days before the launch, exactly. And then you know, and he's got to put that pride, that hurt pride aside because obviously, you know, he's got family. Basically, his family is up there in that capsule, and he's got to get them home safely. So, and I just right. again, I just thought you know, Gary really did a great job with that, and he's just one of those actors I wish would be recognized a lot more for the job and the ability that he does that he brings to the screen. I think if he would have kept in movies, he probably would have. But he just kind of left and went to TV. Well, a lot of actors have said that going to TV gives them more creative control. Like, there's there's better outlet. Uh, who was it? Kirsten Dunst said that making movies nowadays is not as fun as it was like when she was younger. She prefers to be in a TV setting because you you get a little bit more freedom with what you can do with a role versus a movie. Because with a movie, they've got this specific idea in their mind on how they want a character portrayed. And if you're not meeting right. that and- expectation, you're easily booted out. But with a TV... With TV roles, she says you're kind of... Characters can grow. They can grow. So you can make them your own. You can give them these different arcs and stuff like that that you can't capture in a movie because you're time-constrained. So that's why a lot of actors move to TV, from what I understand. Yeah, there's a lot of big actors moving to TV. But then that's also why a lot of actors move away from TV, too. Uh, They like a little bit more control, or they like the ability... I don't know. Ask George Clooney. (laughs) You get into TV because, like you said, you have more control. You can build a character. But at the same time, if you get on the right show, you're there for 10 years, you know? And you're like, 
man, I want to do something else. Yeah, I, I got to get out of this. <laughs> yeah. Whereas with a movie, you know, you're going to make the movie, and unless it's a franchise, you can move on to the next one. Yeah, role. in six months, you're done. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and I do want to do an honorable mention. So I really love the um, the camaraderie and the chemistry between the three main people, um, Tom Hanks, uh, Bill Paxton, and uh, Kevin Bacon. Just with the three of them, they had to go through a lot. And we'll talk about it a little bit more as the episode progresses, but the type of filming they had to go through, the shooting schedule, the environments they had to be put into, that can be, you know, very um that can be very wearing on a person. Oh yeah, definitely. So, but you know, the three of them obviously work together so much on this film and you could just see that uh that compatibility and that chemistry that they all had working together it, you weren't just seeing three actors on there you were seeing three people who were relying on each other and i that really came across in the story and i just love the way they all fed off each other and worked with each other so i just wanted to give them honorable mention about how awesome they all are yes definitely all right so anything else you want to add before we move on negative excellent Let's talk about our favorite scenes or sequences on this one. So I don't have a lot, quite honestly. Honestly, <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I, I didn't write down any. Well, I because I couldn't. I I really couldn't. I wrote down a few. I mean, again, I I we've been breaking the rule lately. The entire movie is just great to watch from beginning to end. But I do have some things that I do enjoy watching while I'm watching the movie. So it, like any scene that takes place in. Like the mission control and stuff like that. I love those scenes. I love to see. Okay, yeah. Because yeah, yeah the camera is concentrating on one one person or one station or this station or that station, but you have to have all these people working together. So whether the camera is facing you or not, you are a background character who is playing a very important role. And then when you do that widespread span of the entire mission control and you just see everybody doing their thing it's just such a cool experience to watch and you just sit there and like man that's ha- is that really what it was like is that how it was yeah and then on top of that within any scene that takes place in mission control one of my absolute favorite scenes and it's such a small one is the carrying of the box with the vest in it there at the beginning as it's making its yes. way to Gene Krantz because, you know, you can tell that's a tradition. You can see like, oh, man, the vest is here. We're about to this is about to happen. He can put on the vest and that means it's a go on our end. It's such a it's such a strange symbolic gesture. But then you feel you you feel that energy as that box moves through the room, making its way to Gene Krantz's station. And I love the way everybody's reacting to it and stuff like that. And everybody's clapping. Yeah, yeah. it's just it, it felt it was a feel good part of the movie. You know, doom is coming, but you had to get in that kind of feel good part just to kind of I don't know if it's re, if it's setting an expectation, because, again, like you already know what's about to happen later in the movie. But maybe it was like a false kind of uh expectation like okay you know everything is great everything's dandy now we've got the vest we can have a mission and then it all goes downhill from there so that vest is currently sitting in the smithsonian yes it is i don't know if it's that vest or the original vest uh from what i understand it's the original 
So they didn't put the original vest or the the vest in the Smithsonian until after this movie came out, actually. Yeah, because and they had that. Yeah, this movie created so much. Uh, vest, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, interest in the vest. And apparently, it's something his wife did for every mission. Yep, I think that's and she made it herself. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. And then the last thing I have written down is. Um, I love the entire sequence uh, when that starts when Jack goes to stir the tanks and the explosion happens. Everything that happened from that moment to the part where they finally figure out what's venting out in space. I mean, it is just, it does not give your brain a chance to stop. It is action, 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 this, that. Oh, yeah, from that point on, definitely. And it's such a, it's a beautifully done sequence, uh, flipping back and forth between what's happening up there. Um, in the command module and the limb and then what's happening down in mission control it just it all works well together it's a gr- it's a beautifully shot sequence it's uh done well uh they're just firing off lines this there that and it's just it's wonderful couldn't have said it better myself <laughs> i'm gonna go with what you got sweet sweet <laughs> honestly it, it, was, it was really hard for me to pick scenes for this movie it was um it's hard to pick i don't know a favorite Favorite moment of a disaster movie that was a true story, you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I like when, I, I, I like when it exploded, but <laughs> that put people's lives in, in jeopardy in real life, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of hard for me to do that, so I was just going to go with what you said. But what you said was, was great. I agree with everything you said. Well, thank you. Thank you. Put a lot of thought into it. I've had, I've had, uh, what, a what it's 2020. I've had fifth, 25 years to think about this. Yeah. Almost said 15, 25 years ago. Yeah. So not crazy. I keep forgetting the nineties is 20 years ago, <laughs> 30 years ago. I'm old. Yes. Yes. It wasn't just yesterday. Uh, let's move on to quotable lines. So where do we begin? Houston. We have a problem. Which is That's a very inaccurate line. It is. I have that written yes, down too. Yes, that, that is not originally what was said, but it, tur- it has become one of the most iconic lines in Hollywood history. So the original line, actually, yeah, so the original line that was recorded by NASA in Apollo 13 was, Swagger came on and said, okay, Houston, we've had a problem. And Mission Control says, this is Houston, say again, please. And then Lois says, uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Now we have a problem, but we had a problem. Yeah. But Houston, we have a problem is much more dramatic. Is, yeah, one of the most quotable <laughs> lines probably in cinema history. Yes. It's actually my text tone. So anytime I get a text message on my phone, that's what plays. Houston, we have a problem. Oh, really? Yep. Tom Hanks. Like, Tom, like Hanks Tom talks. Hanks saying yeah, that? Nice. Tom Hanks talks to me every time someone texts me. That line is great. Uh, I also love um, the line that uh, Ed Harris, Gene Krantz says. Uh, this could be, or, you know, when somebody's, uh, the NASA director, Joe Spano. Yeah, I actually have it written down. Yeah. yeah this could be the worst disaster uh, says, NASA's ever experienced. Yeah. With all due respect, sir, I believe this is going to be our finest hour. And, you know, he says it with such sincerity. You, you believe it's going to happen. Even though. And you- I also like the line where uh, Tom Hanks comes home and he's telling his wife, and instead of going to Mexico, he's going to go to the moon. And he says, yeah, we're going to be on Apollo 13. She's like, uh, she goes, naturally, it's 13. He goes, it comes after 12. 12. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just a number. comes after 12. There was one line that, I, it was kind of one of those throwaway lines. It was meant to be comedic, but I, I think it has a way deeper message, and it's completely understated. Uh, 
it was when Tom Hanks is laying out on his, you know, lawn furniture with his wife and they're staring up the moon and they're talking about the events that happened. He goes, from now on, we live in a world where man has walked on the moon and it's not a miracle. We just decided to go. Yeah. And it's just like, that's, that's deep. We had no reason to go. We just looked up at the moon and said, we got to go. And we did. Yeah, we got to go. It wasn't miracle. It was science. I wrote down, uh, yeah. No, yeah, exactly. I wrote down, well, actually, one of the last things said in the movie was when he was doing the, um, when they were walking out of the plane and they had the over voice going. And he says, our mission was called a successful failure and that we returned safely, but we never made it to the moon. And then actually one of my favorite lines from the movie was when Marilyn comes in, Blanche, these nice men are going to watch television with you. This is Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. <laughs> are you boys in the space program too? Yeah. <laughs> there were some really good uh, comedic lines in this yeah. film. I, I like the one where uh, Tom Hanks is in the vehicle assembly building, giving the tour to uh, the politicians. And uh, one of them's like, how do you go to the bathroom in space? And he goes, well, um, I tell you, it's a very complicated procedure that involves cranking down the window and looking for a gas station. You know, it's... Yeah, that's funny. Again, the throwaway lines, I feel, are the best lines sometimes. Oh, yeah. But uh, that's what I got written down for quotable lines. Otherwise, I would just be sitting here talking about the whole movie, as usual. Moving on. The dangerous category, rate the plot on a scale of 1 to 10. How do you rate a movie based on true events? How do you rate the plot of a movie based on true events? Very easily. It really happened. (laughs) It did really happen, but what... The beautiful thing about it being a movie based off of true events is that you're going to have things in the story that were changed. So were the changes good for the story moving forward or were the changes bad for the story moving forward? So that's where you're really going to sit there and say, you're not really rating the story itself because, again, like you said, it already happened. You're rating the telling of the story. Right. No, I I get that. I give it a nine. Give it a nine. Why would you give it a nine? Basically for what you just said. (laughs) Because the, well, I mean, for what they put in there to captivate the audience really brought the whole story together. Mm -hmm. And made people see how, like we talked about earlier, the behind the, the behind the scenes stuff that nobody would have ever seen if this movie hadn't come out, what happened in mission control, what happened in the lunar module, um, what happened on the re-entry, um, the way the, the characters were feeling throughout the whole thing, um, the way they had to, uh, bring Ken in to bring them back home, everything about it. I give it a nine. Okay. Fair enough. Time for me to give my answer. All right. So on a scale of one to 10, I am going to actually give this movie a 10 because you you had a feeling I would. I feel like even with the liberties that they had to take, you know, changing some of the original dialogue, you know, having to switch some of the story around for, you know, to just help drive the story and stuff like that. I still felt like they remained true to the disaster itself. I mean, again, NASA has praised this movie. Uh, Jim Lovell and surviving members of the Apollo 13 mission have praised this uh, telling of this movie and stuff like that. And Ron Howard has justified the changes that he approved, uh, whether it was uh, dialogue changes or having just to move some stuff around on the storyline. It's just, 
you could tell a lot of a lot of love and a lot of care went into telling the story despite the changes they had to make and stuff like that and it's just one of those stories that kind of still holds up to this time and it's one of those historic stories that you don't get tired of watching you know it you yeah. know exactly what's going to happen you know it's going to how it's going to end you know it's going to be okay and it's going to have that happy ending but you still feel that kind of anxiety and that frustration with what's happening up in space what's happening at mission control uh from the family perspective you know you got marilyn lovell and her family they're just they're stuck in their house watching everything unfold on tv you know that's got to be frustrating in itself and so i just felt like as a whole it's a fantastic film a phenomenal film and it's just one of those ones that i will never grow tired of rewatching 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 over and over and over and over and over again. Agreed. So, that brings us to things that they did not get right with the story. Plot holes, goofs, mistakes. Uh, I got stuff in here. Um, there was a lot of, from what I read, time period issues mm -hmm. with like headphones that hadn't come out yet. TVs uh, that had, TV yeah. models that were yeah, co Mr. Coffee that didn't come out till years later. Uh, little things like that, that people watching the movie had way too much time on their hands to actually go through and research and find out that it was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, there's there an Astros game on in the background. It showed it for like two seconds, but somebody put, oh, this game was played the year before uh, against this team and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. And then another thing they got wrong which I've seen this in so many movies. The T minus 60 seconds to zero took 79 seconds. <laughs> Would you see that in movies all the time? Yeah. Like you can't trust one minute till this bomb blows off. Yeah. One minute till this bomb blows up five minutes later, they're finally, just gonna, it finally blows up, you know, <laughs> that's not Hollywood. Like one, magic. And then two minutes come by two, then three minutes go by. <laughs> yeah. You gotta love that Hollywood magic. Uh, I, I mean, I agree with you. You know, I had to go kind of scour through the internet to try to find things that were wrong with this movie and stuff like that. I did find some actually interesting things. Um, thank you, IMDb. I'm going to credit you for this one. Uh, I found the same things I did. Probably you have a whole accuracy uh, list here. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I I didn't know this, and I think this is actually kind of interesting. So as Neil Armstrong walks on the moon, Walter Cronkite says the Apollo 11 landing is 18 months after the tragic Apollo 1 launch pad fire. It was actually 30 months after, but in reality, that's that's what Walter Cronkite said. He originally said 18 months. Oh, he really said in it real wrong. life. Huh. Yeah. So it's one of those things where they it's credited as being inaccurately regarded as a goof. <laughs> but it, right. So it, yeah, Walter huh. Cronkite really said it. So I, 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 you know what? I would have never sat there and did the math to think. Of, I wouldn't have either. Like, you know, just, but you now that, that you okay, think about cool. it, yeah. 18 months between Apollo one and Apollo 11, you're like, Oh, well, yeah, no, that's way too short of a time. But at, when you're watching right. the movie, you're really not going to think about it. And the other thing I thought was actually kind of cool is um, right towards the end of the movie, you know, they're trying the the 
they're uh, doing the reentry procedures to get back into the atmosphere and stuff like that. And now they're talking about this typhoon that's taking place in the mm-hmm. landing area. Yeah. Um, and what you're seeing is a full color satellite image of the area in question. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, they did not have color satellite images. Yeah. At that time. And especially um, equipment and uh, the science wasn't sophisticated enough to give it in real time. So, yeah, any information they would have been looking at weatherwise would be more, uh, you know, would be, I'm not going to say old, but like within like an hour or so, not real time. So Ron Howard actually had Walter Cronkite go and reread some of his uh, audio reports and make new ones for the movie. Yeah, I remember reading that and I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so accuracy of the movie compared to what really happened. I wrote a couple things down. Go ahead. Uh, turning the limb into a lifeboat was something NASA had actually practiced. Yeah, I do remember reading that. And if I remember correctly, somebody involved with that Apollo 13 developed the procedure for doing that. I'll have to go back and reread. But well, I, I don't, I don't know if there was a pr- procedure per se, but it was something they practiced. Mm-hmm. So when they, um, when they had to use the limb as a lifeboat. They pretty much they didn't have to go and scramble like, hey, how do we do this? You know, mm-hmm. they already had well, I guess procedure in, in in hand or somebody knew what to do. Is basically they had to get a hold of that somebody who knew what to do and contact them, and this is what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so the power of procedure, uh, they didn't, you know, when Ken Madeline's in the in the simulator at the or second half of the movie trying to figure out how to power up the uh, control module but they don't have enough power for it. And so they have to get power from the limb to go over to the control module. So the power procedure, they didn't figure that out in a simulator. And this is exactly the quote. It says, you don't do things that way. It was a very good way of conveying to the public that we had to work on it, but the public could never have followed the real magnificence of of having this group of people laying around doing all these things at a time. So yeah, so they they didn't have anybody in the simulator. They didn't have Ken Mattingly in the simulator trying to get power. I'm sure he was there, mm-hmm. and I'm sure he was one of the people trying to f- figure out how to get power to the to the control module. But nobody was actually in the simulator simulating how to do it. Yeah. Uh, another one is the reentry blackout in the movie. Uh, the blackout lasts three minutes, and they're back in four. So the reentry blackout um, in the movie, they, they said that the blackouts can last three minutes. If they're not back and four, we'll know. But in real time, in real life, uh, after they hit the four minute, it was actually six minutes until they heard from them. Hmm. Which I don't know why they just didn't put the six minutes in there. So it might have been the six minutes in the movie because I actually I that's what this is why I take my notes before I watch the movie just to read stuff like this and then watch to see if I catch it myself. And they had the four minute mark. And then time kind of went by a little after that, but they didn't never show the clock again. So it could have been six minutes. They just never showed the clock again. But it's made, it makes you believe that they came back at the four minute mark in the movie. Uh, clever. Yeah. So I found the little fact what I was thinking of. So I don't know if it's really a developed procedure for it. But um, a few weeks before the actual incident, a similar uh, simulation was given uh, to Krantz and his team as part of a drill. The controller simulated a loss of cabin pressure in the command module just as it entered blackout behind the moon. 
and uh, they had to scramble to devise a way out of the scenario. He and his team chose to have the Lem redock with the command module and be used as a lifeboat that gets the astronauts back. So Kranz actually was one of the... I, I guess you can credit him and his team with being the ones who decided that the Lem could be used as a lifeboat. Right. Whether it, there was an official procedure or that was the official response or not. But it's kind of weird that they actually got that as a scenario in a simulation and yeah right before yeah right before that and then they actually had to put it to real use well like one of the the lines that he said was when he was in the movie uh trying to uh when they were talking about using the the limb as a lifeboat and the guy was like hey it wasn't designed for these skills I, I didn't ask what it was designed to do i asked what it can do yeah exactly not what its limitations or what is it what are its limitations right uh, so that's all I have for accuracy. I think I have a couple more in my, in my, in my end notes here, but I, they're all jumbled together. So I'm just gonna have to read through and if we come across it, we come across it, but I've got more notes, uh, unless you have something else. I've got one, uh, I, I'd written down some stuff about the NASA logo, but I'm really not that concerned about it because if we're going to really, really get into such finite detail, then we're going to have to just tear everything else in the movie apart. There is one thing, though. So they used the USS New Orleans as a stand-in for the USS Iwo Jima. Uh, yes. For the recovery scene. And you could see some weapon systems on the uh, New Orleans that were not in use during that time. One of those being the SeaWiz system, uh, close-in weapon system. Uh, that didn't go into commission until 1977. So, But, I mean, oh, okay. pretty picky. Yeah, we'll see. I wouldn't have known that you would. So, um, so I got, got, got you in the Navy and my, my little cousin's in training right now. Yes, he is. Hope he's doing all right. Yeah, well, I think he's still, he might be out of quarantine now. I keep, I keep I looking at the updates on Facebook from Recruit Training Command, see if his name or picture pops up. Yeah, I, I followed that too. But, anyways, I got some other stuff here. Um, in some scenes where the Earth can be seen through the window of Apollo 13, uh, some of those photos were actually taken by Jim Lovell on the Apollo 8. Yeah. When the real Jim Lovell saw the film for the first time, he found the CGI work so convincing that he believed that they were uncovered, unused national footage scene. <laughs> oh, this, I mean, it did look pretty real in the movie. For 95, I think the CGI in this movie is fantastic for 95. Yes, unfortunately, it really hasn't held up much. You can definitely tell it's CGI, but I'm, you can you can get over that. So I loved this one. Okay. Ron Howard did a test viewing. Oh yeah. And one of the <laughs> audience members said it was a typical Hollywood ending and that the crew would have never survived. <laughs> okay, lady. <laughs> yeah, I remember reading that and it was like they walk among us. Idiots yeah. walk among us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what else? Um, Gene Kranz didn't actually say failure is not an option, but when he saw the movie, he liked it so much he named it the title of his autobiography in 2012. I mean, 2000. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, set designers looked through pictures of Jim Lovell's old house in 1969 to recreate it. Nice. Uh, so basically, what you saw their house looked like is pretty much what it looked like. Okay. Uh, they filmed the no-gravity scenes in a zero-gravity plane that had only 23 seconds of weightlessness. The plane performed 612 dives 
filmmakers, uh, giving filmmakers 54 minutes of footage. So they had 54 minutes of footage that they could only film 23 seconds at a time. Yeah, that's that's a lot. I, that's crazy. I, I remember reading that too. In fact, I got it pulled up right here. Um, so the plane is called the KC 135, uh, and it can achieve uh, its weightlessness from anywhere from 23 to 25 seconds at a time. Uh, they were in a little over 600 controlled dives called uh, parabolas. And uh, 30 to 40 of them were possible during a flight. So in one flight, you can do 30 to 40 of these types of dives. And I think what's really cool about this is I also remember reading somewhere that uh, none of them got sick. Uh, None of the actors got sick. Uh, I heard the crew did. But uh, I heard one of the crew members threw up on Bill Paxson. Yeah. One of the film, the camera guys. But uh, Kevin uh, Kevin Bacon said that uh, one of the reasons that he was able to kind of keep his uh, calm during that is that he kept staring at the back of Tom Hanks's head. So he credits Tom Hanks's yeah. head for uh, keeping him from throwing up during that time. And it was actually Steven Spielberg who recommended to uh, yep. Ron Howard that they do they That's use the KC one thirty five instead of using wires and harnesses and stuff like that to do it uh to try to recreate the weightlessness that way next (laughs) (laughs) Uh, next i got uh after tom hanks chose his role sinise was uh given free reign of what he wanted to play and so he picked uh ken mattingly and said when i took the when i took a look at it i said i want to play that guy without him they don't get back exactly so this is kind of cool too so some critics uh, blasted what they thought was a hokey Hollywood moment when Marilyn Lovell loses her wedding ring down the drain. Uh, they thought that the writing was fictional, and this fictional moment was an omen of bad luck and was overkill. The truth is, she actually did lose her ring while showering, but was eventually able to recover it. Yeah, I remember reading that too. Because I'll, I'll be quite honest, I thought the same thing for the longest time. Yeah, I did too. I was like, man, yeah. this is kind of hokey. Really? Yeah. Kind of foreshadowing what's to come, but it really did happen. Yeah, it makes it all the better that they included it because of that. Absolutely. Uh, They recreated Mission Control exactly how it was, originally was. They wanted to use the original Mission Control, which is now a historical monument, but it was too small for the film production. Yeah. I heard they did such a great job that, you know, they brought in the technical advisors, people who used to work Mission Control, that one of them at the end of shooting that day left the set and he went down a hallway expecting there to be an elevator because that's exactly where an elevator would have been back (laughs) in the day. And then when he couldn't find the elevator, he remembered he was on a movie set and not an actual Mission Control. So that's how great of a job they did. That is pretty cool. And I've heard they've used it in a couple other movies, too. I mean, I. Why? Why not? You can't remember which ones, but yeah, obviously not Armageddon. Oh. No, that was a weird control room. <laughs> why was, was it so dark, dark in there? And, yeah, it was so dark in there. It was weird, but at the same time, I mean, I work in a control room. Nothing like what you're seeing there, but we keep the lights off. Like, I'd say ninety percent of the time. No, <laughs> like no, no, dark no. in there. I get it. You know, <laughs> being on a naval vessel, you, when you're in a room where you have a lot of screens and stuff that you you want to try to keep the lights down and stuff like that because oh yeah exactly you don't yeah, want it I you do don't too. want it to impair your ability to view a screen so I get it 
Right. I do, but I don't know. It was just way too dark in Mission Control and Armageddon. So a lot of the lines they had, they took directly from Mission Transcripts. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so this is interesting, too. So another one they kind of accuracy they took liberties on. According to Tom Jones, an astronaut who was uh, there for part of the shooting, told Howard that the argument between Hayes and Swigert never happened and would never happen between astronauts. Howard replied in this, um, in trying to show a tense moment in the film, we can only show sweaty forehead so many times <laughs> before it loses its effect. Yeah, Which is true, I mean. Yeah, no, and it's funny you mentioned that because that's exactly why I said Ron Howard justified the changes that he made right. in the in the story because it's absolutely true. You're you're trying to you're trying to tell something that happened in Yeah, they would have never argued because that's counterproductive. But you got you got to show what's happening up there and what's the best way to show something through emotion. And right. So, I I, I agree with that change. And last, I have some casting what ifs. All right. Well, before we dive into casting what ifs, I've just got a few more, you know, missile. I, I, I know we kind of went into miscellaneous topics all of a sudden, uh, but uh, I just got a few more that I want to highlight. So earlier, uh, we had both alluded to the fact that Tom Hanks was kind of like the accuracy police on this film. You know, he wanted everything to right. be perfect. Apparently, he was driving um, Ron Howard and Brian Grazer, the producer so crazy with his uh with his um accuracy and stuff like that he he calls himself a closet astronaut apparently that uh he was wanting to get every detail right that one day he dragged Howard and Brian out of bed so they could watch an astronaut crew in action do you want to know what that action was what the crew was walking across the parking lot <laughs> nice that's why i said i'm surprised Ron Howard didn't just like kick Tom Hanks off the set sometimes because if I were a director and an actor was pulling me out to watch astronauts walk across a parking lot, we're fighting. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and then uh, there was somebody who actually went to uh, Jack Swigert's uh, defense. So people were very critical of Jack Swigert's uh, portrayal in this film because they portrayed him yeah, as the, I read that too. the bachelor, the playboy. the playboy, and stuff like that. He was actually. He's actually a very smart man. Uh, you you highlighted it when you were talked about him, but he's a very smart man. He actually came up with a lot of procedures for NASA and stuff like that. Right. Uh, but uh, so a friend of his, Barbara, um, penned an op-ed for the Los Angeles Times that uh, took producers to task for his betrayal, asserting that he was not the playboy that the movie uh, presented him as. Hollywood usually stereotypes its bachelors, and Jack, 25 years after the fact, fell prey to that uh, ploy. He would have loved the film, but he would have hated his portrayal. And that does kind of suck that they did that too, you know? Uh, portrayed him to how he wasn't at all, you know? Mm -hmm. They're even saying how... how um, because in the, in the movie, they're kind of wondering if he could even pull it off, you know? If he was... If he, he's a rookie, uh, if, he, if he could even pilot the ship. But in real life, they said they never had any doubts that he would be able to. That he... he would have been perfectly fine doing it. That he was perfectly fine doing it. Yeah, I I read also somewhere else that uh, Jim Lovell would have said it. It was never a concern if he wasn't going to be able to do it because they would have just backed off and they would have tried it again. And if he just couldn't do it, there are two other capable pilots on board the right. on board the vessel 
that could have docked it. So, you know, it, again, more Hollywood dramatics, but hey, it made for pretty good storytelling. Uh, yeah. I thought this one was interesting. No one on the Apollo 13 production team was sure what re-entry was supposed to look like. So, you know, they're talking about the re-entry and how they were going to film it and how it was going to be displayed on uh, camera. When the three astronauts were able to attempt re-entry into Earth's atmosphere, there wasn't a frame of reference for the specific special effects that they would need to use, just verbal recollections of Lovell and Hayes, who described the scene from the inside of the module as akin to being in a fluorescent tube. So to create the effect of the module's fire-covered arrival, cameras filmed a blaze at only four frames per second, which gave it a flickering, smeared appearance to mimic the real thing. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah. And here's a little fun uh, thing. So Apollo 13 debuted in a crowded summer movie season with Batman Forever happening, Braveheart, Die Hard with a Vengeance, and they were all fighting at the same time. Uh, Fortunately, its uh, direct competition on opening weekend was Mighty Morphin Power Rangers (laughs) and Sylvester Stallone's Judge Dredd. So Apollo 13 made roughly $25 in its first three days, or nearly as much as both of those other movies made combined. Nice. Yes. And we already talked about uh, the movie reviewer who said the ending was fake. So yeah, that's funny. <laughs> okay, I, I, I guess I really got nothing else to add. Uh, add a, so you need to add this to your category at least for us because I have it like within my notes, and I I have to try to skip over and come back to them. But the casting what ifs because we always do that. So I'm gonna make an actual section for casting what ifs from now on. Okay. Sorry. So my casting what ifs, just a couple here. Okay. But Brad Pitt turned down uh offered to star in the film. It doesn't say by who or who he was gonna play, but he turned it down and did seven instead. Smart movie. Uh, which I just uh, I watched seven yesterday. Love that movie. Um John Cusack and Charlie Sheen were both offered the role of Fred Hayes. Yeah, I remember reading that. Glad that didn't turn and out. And John Travolta was uh, uh rumored to be offered the lead and turned it down. See, I read that John Travolta went to Ron Howard and asked to play the lead, but Ron Howard's like, no, we've already given it to Tom Hanks. Sorry. See, that, see I was kind of warning about that, too, because I had read that Ron Howard already had Tom Hanks in mind and wanted, and it's like as soon as he met with Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks, like, Tom Hanks had been wanting to do an Apollo 13 movie way before Apollo 13 even was on the radar to be done. Mm-hmm. And he had heard that Ron Howard uh, or somebody, I guess I think Ron Howard was bought the script. Ron Howard's produ- and, Ron Howard uh, and Brian Grazer's production company bought the right, script. Right, right, mm-hmm. yeah. The production company brought, bought the script. So Tom Hanks went to them and like it was like a done deal right at the, right at the get-go. So reading that uh, John Travolta was offered a, uh, the leading role kind of was like, uh, I don't know about that. Because it also said uh, that, so that'd be like two roles in a row that, he was offered and turned down, and Tom Hanks took it instead because the year before was uh, was Forrest Gump. Yeah, so no, as far as far as all the research that I did for this movie, Tom Hanks was always Jim Lovell from the moment that production began, obviously, to by finishing of the film. <clears throat> uh, yeah, I had read that John Travolta had gone and asked 
to play the lead and, you know, was kindly told no. Sorry. Right. And uh, the role, I do believe the role that uh, Brad Pitt was up for that he turned down was that of Jack Swagger. Okay. See if anybody, that's who I can see him playing. Yeah. It was supposed to be Jack Swagger, and I I think he did the right thing by going with Seven because oh, that yeah. was such a terrific Seven's role for a him. Great movie, yes. What else you got? That's all I got. That's it for the casting. What ifs? Wow, this is a tremendous movie, and just I, I, there's many things I'm sure we didn't even begin to touch on with this film. Yeah, do you have course, any? Yeah. Th- do you have any additional notes or? Factoids uh-huh. that you would like to share? I've, I've, I've read everything that I have in my book. All right. So I, did, I pulled some more information from IMDb. You know, I know that's kind of like the cheat way of pulling information, but I, I, IMDb does put out some really good stuff in their little trivia section. They and do. I, yeah. I enjoy reading it. That's where I get a lot of my stuff. Um, so I, I just want to kind of. That's why I think we get a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I just kind of want to highlight a few things. Um, so after Swagger admits having forgotten to file his tax return, which I guess he really did in real life, Clint Howard, who played the role of the guy who turned around and said, that's no joke, they'll jump on him. Well, the reason that, w- that line was improvised on the spot because Clint Howard had tax problems in real life. <laughs> so he's just like, oh yeah, that's what, that would really happen. Tom Hanks is wearing the Naval Academy ring of Jim Lovell. So Jim Lovell's actual Naval Academy ring in the movie. That's pretty And cool. Tom Hanks and Kathleen Quinlan both went to the Lovell's home in Texas to do research for the movie and meet with them specifically. Uh, the vomit that you see Fred Hayes vomiting up is condensed soup. But Fred yeah. Hayes, the real Fred Hayes, claims to this day he never actually threw up in space. Yeah. All right, so I thought this was really, really interesting. So whoever found the did the research on this one, I, I, I love you because I really think this is cool. So one of the dramatic developments in the story is the last-minute replacement of command module pilot Ken Mattingly by his backup, Jack Swaggart. Mattingly subsequently replaced Swaggart on Apollo 16. But Jim Lovell would have never commanded Apollo 13 had he not himself, as backup, swapped places with the original Apollo 8 CMP Michael Collins, when Collins suffered a herniated disc long before the flight, so had Collins stayed healthy and flown on 8, it is more likely that Jim would not have commanded 13, but Collins would have commanded 13, and Jim would have gone on to being the command module pilot of 11, and possibly been the first person to set foot on the moon. Which is crazy. Yeah. But also, didn't they get that... Spot on 13 because somebody got sick and so they moved their whole crew up too. Yeah. So it's crazy how all that works out. <laughs> yeah, it's just crazy how, yeah, it, it all did turn one, out. One little, it's the, it's the butterfly effect. Absolutely. That's actually the best way to say it. it is the butterfly effect. And then, so Lovell would have been on Apollo 11 and would have very likely commanded Apollo 17 and thus been the last man to walk on the moon. Yeah. Uh, Eugene Cernan, who had been the last man to walk on the moon, would have been instead the lunar module pilot of 16 and a position he turned down in hopes of securing the 17 command. So whoever found all that information and took the time to put that together, thank you, because I really thought that was pretty awesome. Yeah, that was pretty cool. I saw that too. I just didn't want to write all that down. Uh, yeah, no, I took a <laughs> screenshot of it because I wasn't going to write it all down either. Nice. Um, 
And I really thought this was cool. So when they're in their spacesuits and they actually lock the helmets in place, they are literally locking the helmets and pumping oxygen into it. It's not just simulated. So they were That's legit cool. wearing spacesuits. And then, oh yeah, here's that thing about uh, Jack Swagger. So they, the way they portrayed him in the film was very inaccurate. In real life, Swagger actually wrote the malfunction procedures for NASA command modules and therefore knew the machine incredibly well and was more than capable of piloting the mission. Yeah, exactly. So, again, uh, probably a strange choice for Ron Howard, but I get it also from the Hollywood perspective. You know, right. Jack Swagger was the only one who wasn't married. He was the bachelor and stuff like that. So, oh, sure, make him the womanizer too. And they really didn't allude him too much to being a womanizer. Yeah, there's some innuendo with the beer bottle and the glass at the opening party of the movie uh, where, you know, he's simulating how the docking procedure is going. Yeah, yeah. But they never actually call him a womanizer or and then they made that little uh thing fred hayes said you know oh, i got the clap the scd the clap yeah do you actually know why he got sick up in space uh no so apparently it's because to pee in space you have to wear this little like condom like thing and it's attached to a tube and that's how that's how you pee. Oh yes, yeah, urinary tract infection. He got yeah. a urinary tract infection yeah, because he wasn't right. taking it off between times of going pee. Yeah. So that's why Fred Hayes yeah. got sick. Take it off <laughs> in space. Makes sense. And I, I really that's that's all I got. I mean, again, I could just go into cool. so much more, but that's all I got. All right, well, I think we have reached a good stopping point for Apollo 13. Uh, again, we've just only begun scratching at the surface of this movie uh, based off of real-life events. This movie's been out for 25 years. Uh, it's just it's an absolutely phenomenal movie. It's going to be one of those movies that always stands the test of time, uh, and generations beyond us are going to be able to enjoy this film and uh, everything. It's always going to be in my top five favorite movies. I I just I've got nothing but praise for this film. Nothing. It's a good one. It is a good one. So we are gonna wrap it up with the Apollo 13 discussion. Next up on yours and mine discussion list, uh, we are gonna be talking a little comedy horror. Yes, we are. Yes, I cannot wait to include that in the October Horror Special. So uh, stay tuned for that. And uh, guys, in the meantime, uh, continue being safe out there. Uh, movie theaters are reportedly starting to open up around the country. So we'll see how long that happens. And uh, we will see you next time at the movies.